Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. And we're also joined this week by a special guest, my good friend, Rabbi Jonathan Greenberg. Today, we'll discuss the ethics of shipping migrants from border towns to sanctuary cities. But first, I want to go to New York, particularly a piece in the New York Times that appeared last week, uh, the headline of which is, In Hasidic Enclaves, Failing Private Schools Flush with Public Money. New York's Hasidic Jewish religious schools have benefited from $1 billion in government funding in the last four years, but are unaccountable to outside oversight. Uh, and this is why I wanted uh, Jonathan on the program with us today to talk about this. Um, I really became familiar with the story from listening to uh, Commentary Magazine's podcast last Monday where they discussed it and described it as essentially a hit piece on Jewish schools in New York. Uh, I, I'll just note that the one thing that I found interesting is you know, this focus on the quality of education in these yeshivas. While I don't see the same kind of coverage of the attacks that happen against Jewish people in Brooklyn. It's interesting to me that they seem more focused on this issue than they are in the actual violence that is being perpetrated on Jewish people, which given, I don't know, the history of the world certainly seems like a incredibly important thing to be paying attention to. But Jonathan, I just want to go first to you. What um, is, is this a hit piece? What do you make of what the New York Times has produced here? Yes, I, I think it is a hit piece. I, the um there are a couple of pieces that I would recommend to your listeners. Uh, the first is by Moshe Krakowski, which was in commentary. It's called The Jews of the Jews. Um, and he deals extensively with some of the problems in the article. And Liel Leibovitz in Tablet also had a piece. I don't remember the name of it. But uh, he actually had a piece that came out before the New York Times piece came out because the, the Times had been sending around copies of, of their reporting for comment uh, to a number of different schools. And so it kind of leaked a few weeks before the piece actually was published. And, and Liel wrote his piece before it came out. Um, so I, and I would recommend those pieces for like a, a more thorough takedown of the actual reporting. But yeah, it was a hit piece. I think that there are, uh, there are a number of different issues that you need to look at when you look at this piece. And one is the substance um, what's what's the argument that the reporters are making? And they are making an argument. I mean, it's basically a long-form editorial. Uh, uh, there's reporting in it, but it's they clearly started with a point of view, and lo and behold, their reporting uh, backed up that point of view. So the substance of the piece is worth looking at. You have to understand something about Hasidic communities and, and that Hasidic communities are different than the communities that you and I live in. The interests that they have, the priorities that they have are different. So understanding those communities, I think, is important. I, I think it's reasonable to ask why the New York Times is focused on this particular community. This is 50,000 kids in New York. Um, there are over a million kids in the New York City public school system. And many of their schools are as abysmal as the uh, 
the secular education that some of these Hasidic kids are getting. Um, and so I think why the focus on the Hasidic community is worth asking. And I, I think the main question that I have um, for a free and virtuous society is what's the state's interest uh, in making sure that these 50,000 boys, and then the, the focus in the Times article was on the boys, well, boys and girls are schooled separately. And the focus was on the boys' schools, which have less secular education. We can talk about why if you're interested. But um, the, what's the state's interest um, in producing a particular result from these 50,000 kids? I, which I, I think that's the, the, the primary question that we should be asking as a response to this piece. Well, two things real quick, and, and then I'll turn over to anybody else who wants to jump in. Um, the state's interest question is an interesting one. We've discussed the issue of public education on this program numerous times. And while I agree that historically speaking, the interest in public education has been to create good citizens. I think we all probably agree that public education is not doing a very good job of that right now, which I think also was why it has now lent itself to becoming the culture war battleground that public schools have become. The other thing that uh, – and you'll see this in the piece if, if uh, our listeners go and read the piece in The New York Times as well as we'll include in the show notes the two pieces that Jonathan mentioned – the poor test scores that they point out there. And, you know, I'll take that data on its face and assume that that's all correct. And the first thought that came into my head was, sounds like Chicago public schools. The the math and reading achievement levels in Chicago public schools are, I you know, somewhere around in the 20 19, 20 percent. Um, it it is a if we're presuming that the point of view and I, I agree with you, this piece does read like opinion journalism, which I normally don't have a problem with. If, if people do good opinion journalism and admit where they're coming from and the perspective and the argument they're making, which, of course, is not what's happening with this piece. It, it is written as if it is an objective report. Um, it is the interest seems to be that, you know, they're not providing a good secular education. Well, neither are the public schools. Let me let me attack the substance of the piece a little bit then, because because you brought this up. The, first of all, the piece compares test results from uh, public school students and the students at these yeshivas, um, but they don't compare apples to apples because an apples to apples comparison would be to look at the test scores of the English as a second language students in those public schools because these kids are not learning to be literate in English, in yeshivas, they're learning to be literate in Torah. And from, in, you know, the, the authors of the piece understand that because they start off in the first paragraph by talking about how these schools are failing by design, which is to say that they aren't failing at all. The mission of these schools is to create Hasidic kids, kids who will succeed in the Hasidic community, not to create good American citizens, not to create good New Yorkers, to create good Hasidic Jews. And they're incredibly successful at that mission. Their job is to teach these kids Torah and a Talmudic system that, frankly, is incredibly intellectually rigorous and requires a high level of literacy. And they're incredibly successful at it. So these are not illiterate kids. They just don't speak English. Um, and the, it, you know, so if you're comparing uh, an apples to apples comparison would have to be with English as a second language kids. Uh, and the difference is the public schools want to, theoretically at least, want to teach their kids English as a second language and just suck at it. Uh, and the yeshivas are, you know, tacking on an hour, hour and a half of secular education, including English, at the end of the day when nobody's got any energy to learn anything anymore. And they're doing it because the state is making them. 
and they don't really care about it. They care about transmitting Talmud to their kids. So, I mean, the crux to this, there's a New York state law that requires education provided by public or private schools to be, quote unquote, substantially equivalent to public schools. Um, <laughs> th- now, th- there's there's a problem in that in that you know, educational disparities exist across the public school system in New York as well. And I think there's a very good argument you could make that, you know, the 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 children at the worst performing public schools are not receiving a substantially equivalent education to the best performing uh, public schools. But what do we think about this idea that all schooling should be the same because what you've outlined very clearly here is that this is a very different educational model. And to just give you some background, Grand Rapids has a very uh, large active parochial school system with Catholic schools. We also have a very large uh, uh, Christian school system that's primarily, you know, the Christian Reformed Church, Dutch Reformed folks. And the models that both have embraced have been very akin to typical public school pedagogical models with you know some religious education thrown in. Um, they require their teachers to be certified by the state, um, which is not a requirement in general for public schools. What What is happening, you know, there are other religious schools in the Grand Rapids area who take a very different model, like the Hasidic communities in uh, New York take, is there merit to sort of that that public education project where there should be a one-size-fits-all model of education for, for kids irrespective of their religious traditions? I, I, and I think that gets us back to the state interest question. You know, what is the state, uh, what is the state's interest in uh, making sure that 50,000 boys in New York are fluent and, and, and literate in English and that they have certain literacy and numeracy requirements. What's the state's interest there? Um, and what the argument that I kept seeing in that article and then hearing or seeing on, on Twitter for days after the article came out is, well, what if these kids leave their community? How are they going to be successful in the world outside of that community if they choose to leave the community? And, and my response to that is, I don't think it's the obligation of parents who want their children to live in the community to prepare them to escape it. These are the parents don't want their children to leave the Hasidic community. They want to prepare their children to be successful within that community. Why do they have an obligation to introduce foreign concepts to them so that the kids, you know, have access to the world outside? They don't want their kids to have access to the world outside. Frankly, you know, I, look, the Hasidic lifestyle is not for me, but I have a lot of sympathy when they look at the world that we live in. I have a lot of sympathy for them saying that they don't want their children in it. I often, I, my children live in it and I'm not sure I want my children in it. So the, um, I, I, I think that gets back to the, to the issue of, of what the state's interest is. Listen, I can tell you that, again, I think I said this earlier, learning Talmud is an intellectually rigorous, incredibly academically complicated subject. And if you are well-versed in Talmud uh, and you have been able to learn Talmud, honestly, you've been trained uh, in an intellectual exercise that's going to serve you well if you did decide to leave and, and be a part of the secular world. Um, I, I think most of the kids that, 
all of the, a lot of the people that have escaped, you know, I'm, I'm making air quotes when I say escape because I think that's what secularists think of it as. It's not what I think of it as. But a lot of the people who have left that community have done just fine because they are classically educated in Talmud. Um, and as, as Liel Leibovitz points out in Tablet Magazine, you do have to know some math uh, to understand Talmud. There's math in Talmud. Um, so you can't be completely enumerate uh, and, and learn, you know, learn that system. Um, so again, I, I, these kids are being educated. They're being, frankly, well-educated. They are not being secularly educated. And where and to my the thing I struggle with is would I like them? I, obviously, I've chosen a different educational model for my children. Um, would I like these kids to be more, you know, prepared for American citizenship? I think I would. Um, am I willing to say that I have some kind of interest in forcing their parents to do that to them? Uh, I, I don't think that I do. So I had a few thoughts uh, reading through this article, and there's there's another article uh, that Dan uh, passed on that I, I read as well. Um, and that, that article, at least, made a passing reference to the Amish. And that was one of my first thoughts is there is a community, uh, you know, a comparable community that nobody cares about. In a, in a very positive sense, and they just do what they want, and nobody interferes, right? They educate their kids how they want for their community, for their way of life, um, and they're allowed to do that, and it doesn't seem to bother anyone. Um, there seems to me to be at least two possible differences. One is that the Amish do not primarily live in New York State or, for that matter, New York City. Uh, there was just last week uh, released an uh, uh, index by the uh, – Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. It's a religious freedom in the 50 states. And New York State came in 50th place, uh, which was kind of an amazing finding. Um, and uh, But it, you know, makes a lot of sense when you think about, you know, ways in which they treated religious communities during COVID lockdown, that sort of thing. And you get into some of these details. And despite being so religiously diverse, uh, New York City, you know, one of the most diverse places in the world, um, there's a lot of restrictions. The second difference, though, is that to my knowledge, Amish schools are not getting a billion dollars from the state. Um, and I think that in terms of what is the state interest, the argument of the article was that the interest can be quantified and it's yeah. more than a billion dollars. Now, that does not mean that therefore they are justified, you know, with the steps they're taking, but I do think that is a a, uh, a difference of kind that ought to be discussed. And and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. I, I would love, first of all, I would love for them not to take that money. Um, and, and, but, the, you know, that's a decision that they made. And, and I, um, I, I generally think that it's a mistake. And for this reason, this exact reason is the, is the reason why, if you want to run a religious institution, you don't take government money. Because then they feel free to come in and tell you what you can and can't do. Um, that said, you know, the, the way that the Times uh, does this is it's more than a billion dollars over four years is what they've received. And the, the reason that they use the billion dollar number and they use the four years is because that way they could say a billion dollars. comes out to what, $250,000, uh, $250 million a year. Um, for 50,000 kids, that's about $5,000 per child. Um, overwhelmingly, that is busing, childcare, and free lunches. Uh, we're not talking about like actual education dollars here. This is these are programs for busing and free lunches. So yeah, they're receiving they're receiving public money. I wish they wouldn't, um, but that public money isn't in terms of their classroom instruction. That public money is in terms of busing and free lunches. Uh, and so the uh, and, and 
this gets us into the way that the story was reported uh, and why the focus of the New York Times is on this particular community. You mentioned the Amish. Um, I, I don't know a lot about the Amish. I was raised in uh, a small place in Indiana. We had a lot of Amish uh, folks around us, and I went to school with a bunch of Mennonite kids. Um, but I still don't know that much about the community. But it, 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 from the insularity um, is is similar to Orthodox Jews. But uh, I, I just... You know, the, the the Jewish community, including the ultra Orthodox, is so obsession is so obsessed with education. It, it's it's become a joke uh, for Jews and non-Jews alike about overeducated Jews. Uh, it's not a community that's known for disinterest in education. These kids are very well educated. They're just not educated in the stuff that the state of New York thinks they should be educated in. Uh, they go to they are, their parents are obsessed with getting them into the right schools. They're just not schools that teach the subjects the state of New York thinks they should teach. And I, I agree with you that I, I, I wish they wouldn't take that money, but I don't think $5,000 per kid in busing and free lunches entitles the state to tell these kids what they what they, or tell these parents what they can and can't have their kids learn. I think this comes back to a difference. We were talking about that the educational interest and really generally the purpose of education. I think this reveals that, in in a way, we're arguing about two different things. There's a difference between education and schooling. And what public education primarily provides is schooling, which is geared towards a sense of conformity. It is the the reason why all the classes are set up generally the same and they teach the subjects in exactly the same way. There's some really interesting historical stuff that I don't think we need to get into here, but that we could get into sometime about like the history of even just the way classes are taught in elementary education, where that came from and why it is generally so unchanged over time. But there is a there's a difference between I think what Jonathan is talking about here with these kids being incredibly well educated and having not participated in the same kind of just basic schooling that is what is prescribed in almost all public schools all across the country. To just get into this history a little bit, John Dewey, you know, the classic philosopher, education reformer, responsible for much of the shape of modern American secular education. The model of the school he wanted was a model of society in miniature. And if you do that, you have to pick a society. And I think this gets at the question is, does does the purpose of schooling have to be, let's say, the society of New York City in general or particular neighborhoods, particular boroughs, particular religious communities. Um, And that is, you know, the real tension throughout the history of American public education. I mean, part of this has always been an assimilationist assimilationist project as well. Um, You know, English instruction has always been emphasized, you know, originally targeting, you know, not, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities, but, you know, Midwestern German communities Mm -hmm. and uh, Spanish-speaking communities and Native American communities. Um, And we pay a lot of lip service that those things were bad things and we repudiate that legacy. But you can see in this case that that legacy is still very strong. Well, if we were to have... 
it, in an interesting way, this is one of the reasons why this current fad of nationalism drives me so crazy. Because if I'm going to accept that idea of, you know, John Dewey and public education to you know, be a society in miniature, okay, I, I could probably work with that. Um, but my interest would be that it should, you know... It, reflect smaller communities that those schools surround. So you want it to be the neighborhood school. I hear this so much in the rhetoric, particularly from uh, teachers unions, about the importance of neighborhood schools. It should reflect then the neighborhood in which the school exists, which means that there's going to be variance even in a large system like New York City. And we don't see that because we elevate everything up to higher levels, that we have a national department of education, that we have states that are running public schools that, you know, again, I'm from Illinois, so I keep using these examples. You have Chicago public schools, and I grew up in Belleville, Illinois. I mean, there's a world of difference between Belleville, Illinois, or Peoria, or, you know, um, Uh, Clinton, Illinois, and Chicago. And generally, we approach these things as if they are all the same. We push everything up to a higher level, and we don't let it do what I think would at least be the advisable way of the Dewey approach and let it reflect the neighborhood in which it exists. I think there's something deeply obnoxious about the secularists at the New York Times um, telling a small community of religiously observant people that the model of education that has been around since the third century, since the Babylonian academies 1800 years ago were set up, uh, that that's not acceptable in the, and that the state of New York, which is a galactic failure in teaching its secular kids has a better way of teaching kids than people who've been using this successful system for 1,800 years. I just think there's something incredibly obnoxious about that. Well, I think also here, we talked earlier where, Jonathan, you pointed out the comparisons on the test scores are not apples to apples because you're talking about uh, people who would you the right thing to compare would be English as a second language yeah. test scores. Um, to, to borrow from that point in a way, I think this is one of the problems with a lot of publications, especially the New York Times, is at best they have people who are reporting these stories who speak religion as a second language. They are not people who really practice a faith themselves. If they do, they're probably yep. loosely affiliated with it. But you know, if you try to name the people, and again, it, you know, these are reporters, so we don't know a heck of a lot about their lives. But I don't think I'm being unfair in my assumption that peop- a lot of you know, reporters who work at the New York Times is probably not a heavily religious and certainly not in any orthodox sense, religious community. Um, and meanwhile, what you've got basically, Ross Douthat, as the only person at the Times that I can think of who thinks and writes about issues related to religion on a regular basis. In a lot of cases, when you read – this is a phenomenon I think people don't uh, often think about enough – that if you read a news article, even if it's not about religion, just about anything, and you happen to know a lot about that subject, you see almost instantly – how poorly the subject is understood in the article that you're reading. And then so many people don't apply that same thing to areas where they don't know a lot and assume that lack of knowledge is probably 
on some level parallel in other stories that you don't know a lot about and just kind of accept it on its face. I think this is a problem with a lot of the religion reporting in this country is that it is done by people who are speaking religion as a second language. I I think that's really, really accurate. I also think that, I don't know if this is true um, in Catholic circles, but it's certainly true in the Jewish community. And I don't know that it's true of these reporters, but it reads like it is. Uh, that there's an embarrassment on the part of more secular Jews uh, that these ultra-Orthodox people are weird and they make Jews look bad. Or at least they make you know, me as a Jew look bad to my non-Jewish or my secular Jewish friends. Um, and I, I think that's, a, that's another that's a, 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 a inter-Jewish uh, cultural issue that I... I and perhaps it was me reading between the lines, but I read a lot of that in this piece that the the authors I, I think are uh, identify themselves as Jewish, um, uh, and uh, at least that's what I get from their Twitter feeds, uh, and um, and they seem to be embarrassed uh, that these people are Jewish, and they think that these people are embarrassing the rest of the Jewish community, uh, and uh, so I, I think it's unfortunate that that was so readily. Uh, observable in the piece. In terms of uh, religious illiteracy, um, I thought in terms of, you, you mentioned apples to apples and you mentioned, well, we should compare, you know, you know English as second language students. I thought you were going to say uh, we should compare the public students' uh, scores in Talmudic knowledge. <laughs> right, Because <laughs> I, I, I presume they'd be abysmal, um, as, as would mine for that matter. Um, it, it, so once again, I think it was a mosaic article. Uh, maybe Dan has the details, or we can drop it in the show notes. Um, I, I like this article because it, it was someone who had grown up in one of these schools. They did not stay in it, but they were also kind of defending, kind of admitting. And, and you know, like you, I, I, despite all of our caveats, I can't help but think, you know, I do wish these students would score a little higher in terms of English proficiency and and their their math scores. I think it's fine to say that. Um, nevertheless, I. I had an interesting experience, but I do think it's related to all this. Uh, last Friday, my um, my student, my my kids just started a new school. We just got a new house. We moved to a new neighborhood. Uh, my fifth grader, my oldest, is uh, really excited about school spirit week, and they had their homecoming game, uh, football game at the high school. So we went to that on Friday night, and boy, did that take me back. It's been 20 years since I graduated high school, and literally all of the cheers of the cheerleaders were exactly the same. And there were, I don't even know what I was expecting. I didn't expect things to be different, but I was still kind of blown away that, like, they still got marching bands with, like, the, the birdie, the feather, and the hat. And, like, I remember being a kid in high school, and I bonded with friends over how absurd we thought it all was. Not in the sense of, like, we thought it was negative. I, I want to be very clear. It was just we didn't understand why anybody was doing anything, and we didn't understand why no one else was bothered by that, right? It was just this very strange ritualistic sort of thing. I would not say religious, but definitely ritualistic uh, culture. And, you know, they had the homecoming court. They all came out in the field and all this kind of stuff. And um it's the sort of thing that we thought it was silly or ridiculous, and we bonded over the fact that there was no— meaningful grounding to everything that was happening. And that doesn't mean that it's not meaningful. Um, but at, a his, at, at, at these Hasidic communities, there is no such absurdity. They exist as a community of people who have survived persecution. This was mentioned in the Times article. It was about halfway through. It really should have been their lead if they actually cared about giving a more balanced approach to uh, the topic. Uh a lot of these people are descendants of Holocaust survivors uh, or other persecution in Eastern Europe. 
Um, and these are deeply religious people who believe that they are part of a people called by God to witness to his his you know, love for the world. Um, that gives meaning to everything they do in a way that birdies in the hats on the marching band I can't I still cannot explain even though I I, I, I enjoyed it I you know once again I'm not trying to be negative but um, there's something amazing about that that is completely unmentioned and lost uh, in in this piece I tweet this periodically when people uh, talk about um, forcing Jews to do this or that especially when you know the intactivists the people who uh, don't want us circumcising our children, uh, you know, say that we should pass laws or people who don't want us slaughtering animals in a particular way say that we should outlaw kosher slaughter. Um, my response is usually something along the lines of far scarier people than you have tried to force us to stop before and it didn't work. So you're going to have to up your scary game if you're going to mess with us. In, in a weird way, I thought of the uh with some these communities we're talking about, and again, going back to the question of what interest does the state of New York have in, in these communities, I thought of a quote from H.L. Mencken about Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. It's kind of like a weird <laughs> version of that, where it's like this haunting fear that somewhere somebody is living differently. And it, it, we, I think we see this in a, a lot of our, again, going back to my you know, hobby horse and the nationalism stuff. Again, one of the reasons I dislike it is because it puts everything up to the higher level. And you know, the I remember having in I guess it would have been in 2017 uh, or maybe late 2016 after the election was over, an argument with someone who was uh, for the idea that California should secede from the union in response to Donald Trump winning, and I made the point of. Well, this is a reason why I'm an advocate for the federalist system that we have in this country or supposed to have in this country that should not have as much power vested in the chief executive. So, one, it shouldn't matter as much to you who occupies that office. And if you live in California, you can live differently than Texas and Texas can live differently than California and and we can all be more peaceful. And the response that I got was this person saying, oh, so you're saying states rights like that has a good history. (laughs) You're talking about secession like that has a good history. But it is this bizarre and I I think social media is something that amplifies this as well, that it's, you know, Christine Rosen from Commentary is this great way of putting it, that it it has all of the negative characteristics of a small town without any of the positive characteristics so that things that are happening thousands of miles away from you feel like they're in your backyard. I think maybe one of the reasons why – the Amish community doesn't come under the same kind of scrutiny like this is out of sight, out of mind, is because they live in rural Pennsylvania, is because they are not really near anyone, whereas as obviously in the subject what we're talking about, the reason the New York Times is reporting on this is these communities are in Brooklyn. They are in New York City. They're also growing communities. Um, Amish community is also a very growing community, but not visible and not in the sort of they don't occupy the real estate that the tower, you know, the towering heights of, you know, American art and culture reside. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm, I mean, this is maybe maybe a larger question is, is this just I, I've seen some commentators pose this as a sort of uh, that 
that this sort of piece is reflecting of a of an underlying anti-Semitism. I I was I was uh, fascinated by your analysis that um, this might be more of an inter-Jewish sort of dispute um, about you know the face of modern Judaism and what should that look like. I, is this is this merely a small piece of a larger sort of struggle in either New York City politics or disputes within uh, the Jewish community at large? So I, that's an interesting question. And I think this is another way in which there's a, a differentiation with the Amish. There isn't a large, highly identified secular Amish community where the the people who identify themselves in that community also occupy positions in the heights of culture as for example reporters and editors at the New York Times so the you know the um the Hasidic community is a target uh because they're in New York uh and and they're visible in New York they're, that's the other thing is i mean they're they dress differently so they're they're visible um but there's also a large secular Jewish world that doesn't particularly like them. And, and the feeling is mutual, to be fair. Uh, and so the, uh, you know, there's a, unfortunately, the, there's not a, a feeling of siblinghood that I would like there to be uh, among Jews of different stripes. Uh, it's, it's quite the opposite. So I, I do think there's a lot of this is uh, inter-Jewish, I don't know politics is the right word, but inter- inter-Jewish cultural struggle. Um, I think it's also a lot to do with leftism and the, the sense that leftists have that uh, they know what's better than you for your children. Um, and if you're not going to look after your children appropriately, then we're going to have to have the state do it for you. Uh, and, and if you um, open yourself up to an attack uh, like this article is, um, we're going to hold you up for public ridicule and public mockery and perhaps prosecution uh, until you bend the knee. Uh, and I think that kind of hegemony from secularists is uh, should be a concern not just to and that's the other thing is it's an unpopular small community, uh, even among their own people. Jews, for the most Jew, I've been terribly disappointed, not surprised, but disappointed in the institutional response from the Jewish community, which has been that there it hasn't been much of an institutional response from the Jewish community. We are not even defending our own people uh, it, because they're in, they're unpopular even in our community. So the the state can get its foot in the door and force the Hasidic community to do something because there's nobody willing to stand up for the Hasidic community. It's a short trip from that to telling the Catholic schools what they can and can't do. Uh, And so unfortunately, a lot of times when this happens to the Hasidic community, the most vocal people standing up for them are not Jews. The most vocal people are evangelicals and Catholics who see state intervention in these schools as just one step removed from you know, state intervention in Catholic schools, which, by the way, it is. I mentioned at the beginning of this that the other thing happening against the backdrop of this in Brooklyn is an increased number of attacks on Orthodox Jewish people in New York City. Jonathan, do you think that you talk just specifically about New York, but we could try to elevate it to a, a more national level question about America? 
is America becoming less hospitable to Jews and presuming that you think the answer is yes? Um, how much and how bad do you think it is? Um, so I think that at t- in history, at times of great uh, uh, discomfort, at times of, of great social upheaval, um, people typically look for uh, uh, targets and, and, and you know, small groups to blame things on. And oftentimes they settle on Jews because we're, we tend to be visible in a society. We tend to be small. Nobody feels like defending us. Uh, and we're, therefore we're an easy target. I think we also typically don't fight back. One of the reasons, frankly, that the Hasidic community is the target that it is in New York is they tend not to fight back. They, they have organizations that they've formed to fight back for them, but individual Hasidic Jews, I've seen some of the most disturbing videos I've seen. I'm, I'm no longer shocked that there are people attacking Jews in the streets in New York. And it does mostly happen in New York because that's where most of the visibly Orthodox Jews live. What really, really bothers me is that in those videos, nobody fights back. That and you know, I, I saw a video a couple of weeks ago of a of a some punk who had been on a bike and you know pretended like he, he lunged at an ortho, uh, at an Orthodox Jew like he was going to hit him, didn't hit him. The guy didn't do anything. There's four other guys in black coats and black hats standing around, uh, and then the guy you know the guy didn't do anything. So the 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 punk just hauled off and punched him in the face, and the other guys standing around didn't do anything. Uh, and and so I think they they have made themselves an easy target. There's a reason nobody attacks biker bars, right? It's a hard target. You know, you're going to get beat up. Uh, I would love to see uh, Jews learn to defend themselves. You know, the, the one of the main ethos ethoses uh, of of the state of Israel is that Jews need to be responsible for their own self defense. Um, uh, one of the one of the people who was an early uh, Zionist leader, a guy named Zev Jabotinsky, said Jewish Jewish youth learn to shoot, and, and I would love to see, uh, I would love to see clubs. It, it's very hard to get a permit, obviously, to carry in New York, but New York is New York. And, but I'd love to see you know self defense classes pop up where Jews are learning to defend themselves physically. Um, uh, it, you know where it's where you're able to. I would love to see Jewish clubs. Uh, pop up where we're training Jews to shoot and and helping Jews get concealed carry permits and and we're to, you know so people know that if they, if you if you're going to jump a Jewish guy in the street the likelihood is you're going to get your butt kicked uh, I would love to see that happen um, that's a cultural problem in the Jewish community and and I would love to see us address it but to your point do I think it's getting worse yeah I think it's getting worse I think it's going to keep getting worse because we're at one of those you know hinge points in history. Um, and I would love to see Jews start preparing for it. Uh, unfortunately, history teaches us that we can't rely on other people to defend us. We can maybe up into a point. Um, but when it comes to, you know, people deciding whether their safety is going to be at risk or they're going to have our backs, typically they choose their own, their own safety. And I don't hold that against anyone. That's a human reaction. Um, ultimately we have to be responsible for our own self-defense. So is it getting worse? Yes, probably. Would the best Jewish response to that be to go crying to the government to protect us more? No, I don't think that's the right response. I think the right response is for us to learn to defend ourselves. Why don't we move on here to our uh, second topic? Uh, So we've been seeing stories over the last uh, couple of weeks of 
migrants who have been arriving at the border and border towns, particularly in Texas, uh, being put on buses, being sent to so-called sanctuary cities in Chicago and Washington, D.C. The most well-covered of these probably happened just a couple days ago which was uh, migrants coming from Florida uh, were sent to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. And I have to admit, I but I was texting with Jonathan earlier to tell him what we were going to talk about. I said that I'm a very mixed mind of all of this. Uh, I, I have, in a weird way, almost a hard time articulating it because I, I get the point that these governors are making about the what is going on at the border, the crisis that they have, which I think is is incredibly bad, and it is something that is not very well appreciated. And there certainly is not a whole lot of effort to address it in terms of addressing how we handle the question of immigration. And in that sense, this is, I think for all intents and purposes, a troll that is drawing attention to an issue. And in most cases, these migrants uh, are happy to get on these buses or planes and go further into the country to places like Chicago. It has been interesting to see that the people who have often proclaimed themselves to be the most welcoming are the ones who are panicking about this when they're showing up. And yet I cannot get past my feeling that all of this is just incredibly gross. Uh, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I to back up a little bit, this is – Basically a reaction to, I think it was in August, uh, President Biden finally ended the Remain in Mexico policy of Trump. Um, he he was able to do that, I think, since May. There was a, a court decision that allowed him to do that. But by and large, he has not changed much in terms of immigration policy. And I think that should be stated from the outset, just like trade, very restrictionist, um, really not not much of a difference between Trump and Biden. Um, but the problems we're having are because we have a set of immigration laws that are currently unenforceable. Um, and until we get real meaningful reform, it does not matter who is president, does not matter who is governor, there are going to be people coming illegally. Um, we need to find a way to stream. It is ridiculous how hard it is to come here legally. Yeah, we'll, we'll put in the um, show notes. There is a great infographic that Reason created, uh, Reason Magazine created a number of years ago that says if you are, if you're not you know, already connected to somebody who is here in the country, if you don't have family here that can help facilitate you coming here, if you're more or less an unskilled worker, like the kind of people that uh, manual laborers that we see coming to the border, that are the kind of people we're talking about in this conversation, if you want to come here legally, you know, if the people who say, you know, get in line and do it the right way, it's about 125 years. That's about the extent of the wait. So it should be unsurprising that there's an incentive there that says, well, I'm probably not going to live beyond 125 years to make it there. So the incentive is for people to come here illegally. Yeah. And it's probably not even that well thought out. It's just that they know if they come to a normal port of entry, they're not getting in. And so they're going to listen to anybody who can tell them to get through some other way. Um, But there's also a history here, especially in the case of Florida. Um, Florida has you know, a multi-generational legacy of welcoming Cuban immigrants fleeing oppression in Cuba. And it has, as far as I can tell, largely been a positive thing for them. Um, and I think that shows um, really, I mean, I tend to be very open about immigration. I think that people 
are what make a nation and an economy and a community great. And I think this message, yes, it's protesting immigration laws people may agree or disagree with, or immigration policy, I should say. Um, and and again, it's it's a giant mess. It doesn't come down to just one president's uh, executive order or anything like that. Um, but these governors are saying that our state is not a place for people like you, or they're saying our party is not a party for people like you, or our movement, our conservatism is not a, a movement for people like you, and we're just going to pass you through. Instead of saying, well, you know, too bad for the liberals, we get all the new people, <laughs> right? We're going to welcome them. We're going to find a way to integrate them um, to spread the values that we care so much about. And we think our human values, universal values, not just values for us, um, to share them with these people, that clearly is not the intention. Um, there is a fundamental inability to recognize in these people a common humanity. Uh, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to then open the borders. You can say, okay, no, we don't want to welcome these people here. We're going to find a way to humanely get them you know, somewhere else, safe, some other country or back where they can, you know, that sort of stuff. You can find ways to do that humanely. This is just using people for a stunt. It is using people for a means to a political end. And I agree. I think gross uh, is a very adequate term uh, for what that is. There's, there's also an interesting paradox because what are sanctuary cities? Now, sanctuary cities is a very broad term. There are municipalities that call themselves sanctuary cities that don't have the same policies as other municipalities that call themselves sanctuary cities. There are some states that have legislation. But in its most strict construction, it is the instruction that local government authorities are not to cooperate with border control or ICE. And if your if, if, if what you want is you want a rule of law, in terms of admission of people into the United States, sending them to places where you know that, they, that local authorities will not cooperate with immigrations and customs is a really bad way to do it. So I, I approach this in two ways. One is um, the, the policy lens, which you guys have talked about, and the other is, is the political lens. And I'll start with the policy lens. I, I I have a, an 11 year old. I, I took him on a, a business trip to New York, uh, and the, the two of us kind of bummed around New York for the following weekend after my business trip. Um, and one of the places we went was Ellis Island, where his great grandfather came into the country from Romania in the 19 teens, I think, maybe early 20s. Um, and uh, you know, it, and and his his great grandfather did that in order to give the great grandson he never met a better life. Uh, and I, I think that that's a, a powerful story that a lot of Americans share. Um, but when my grandfather came to this country from Romania, it was a different country. Uh, it was a place that was committed to, at a cultural level, creating a melting pot. It was a place that didn't subsidize uh, whatever lifestyle you wanted to live. It was a place that didn't have welfare benefits. It was largely, I mean, New York had some at the at the city level, but uh, there wasn't a federal anti-poverty that, that didn't come about until the Great Society in, in the 60s. Uh, it was, you know, it, you couldn't reap benefits um, 
other than communal benefits. If you were Irish, you came in and the Irish community took care of you. If you were Jewish, you came in and the Jewish community took care of you until you could get up on your own feet. But then you were expected in that community to pull your own weight. Uh, so it was a different country that those people came into. Now, if you wanted to throw open the borders and do away with all welfare systems so that people had to eventually at least pull their own weight, um, I think we could have a conversation about that. But I'm not comfortable saying that the United States has any obligation to welcome people into the country who uh, you know, are, are going to reap benefits and, and who may or may not be able to pull their own weight at some point. I, I'm just not, I'm, I have no interest in doing that. And I think politically, the reason I really like what DeSantis and Abbott have done, I like what DeSantis did a lot better than Abbott. Abbott Shipping people to big cities, to D.C. or to Chicago, I think doesn't actually make a big difference. And I, I also agree that sending people to a sanctuary city where they're not likely to be, there's, there's not going to be any law enforcement cooperation with ICE is probably not a great idea. I think that sending them to Martha's Vineyard is brilliant because, uh, you know, the, people have been documenting on Twitter the lawns in Martha's Vineyard that have those ridiculous yard signs about, you know, the, one of which says no person is illegal. Um, the, you see that there, there, are, there are a number of people, um, I'm sure this is true on, on the right too, but on the left, there are a number of people who want policies, the ramifications of which they don't have to live with, um, who can cloister themselves. I, that's, again, the brilliance of choosing Martha's Vineyard, a wealthy, overwhelmingly white, uh, literal island um, where they are cloistered from the ramifications of illegal immigration. Uh, policies of which they largely support. Um, I think it's a brilliant political statement. Um, I think that it's uh, an effective political statement. Does it use people to make it? Of course it does. But every, every, every politician I'm aware of uses people to make political statements. How many district attorneys do we have across the country who are using law-abiding crime victims to make points about mass incarceration by not incarcerating and not prosecuting people? There are lots of innocent people who end up suffering because politicians grandstand on this issue or that one. Um, in this case, I think it's a relatively small number of people who are perfectly happy to be shipped somewhere in the country. I don't think it actually hurt, ends up hurting anyone. Uh, and um, I don't think it's gross. I think it's an incredibly effective political move. Sorry to be the fly in the ointment. No, that's good. Uh, that <laughs> disagreement means we can have a conversation. I like that. Um, so, I mean, hey, if they're happy to come, that's great. I mean, my concern is just I don't like the idea of reducing people, even if it is criminals in overcrowded penitentiaries, for the sake of political ends. I just have zero tolerance for using people as means to an end. I guess I'm too Kantian. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I mean, I really don't. I just, that's a fundamental principle that human dignity is universal and inviolable. And yes, it gets violated all the time. You're right. I think that's yeah. a tragedy every time. Pointing, um, out, pointing out other bad acts is not a, you know, the way that politicians use people f to make a point is not a defense for continuing to do the same now, thing if said, we're going to make the if we're going to make the point that they shouldn't be doing sure. that. That said, now if if these sanctuary cities, if it's not simply that they have these policies, but they're they have been openly saying send the people to us, then I don't even know why this is a headline. This is just you know, and yeah. it, you know, this is this well, an agreement between two local governments, right? That's, um, that's the point. Is that there's there's an elitist hypocrisy here. 
that that you can you you can only get away with if you don't have to live with the ramifications of the policies you support and the the politically brilliant move here and Martha's Vineyard man way to play right into DeSantis's hand by having by declaring a humanitarian emergency for 50 people showing up on your island and then having the military ship them off to a base on Cape Cod the next day like way to completely play into DeSantis's point I, I think it's it's a brilliant illustration of what is a real problem. And I'm, I'm sure you guys would agree with us that there are too many people in this country who promote policies that have negative ramifications that they don't have to live with. Um, and that'll be, you know, the poors and the rubes that live in the middle of the country, they can worry about that problem. And I don't have to, I've got my, you know, million dollar place on Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, it's it's policy choices as luxury goods that um, they... Right. they it's something that they can afford. Yeah, I, I, I think part of what I think this is, uh, why I do think this is still kind of gross, is that it is a commentary. Um, perhaps, perhaps it fits well within the current state of our politics, and in that sense, is a if I go go back and put my political consultant hat on that I used to wear years and years ago when I ran campaigns. I understand entirely the point that Jonathan is making. I, I think it also reveals itself as a commentary on just how bad and disgusting our political world is right now, that this is the kind of thing that is so effective. Uh, I think that is it, it points to a bigger problem that goes unaddressed, which you know, as Jonathan pointed out, it is revealing of hypocrisy. Uh, we have such an interest in seemingly being truffle swines for hypocrisy that that's the <laughs> most important thing that we got to dig out of every situation is people saying one thing and doing another. And in most cases, it's not even really hypocrisy. It is just people who are being dishonest about something is in most cases revealing uh, hypocrisy actually has a value to it because it is people proclaiming something and not living up to that standard and doing another thing. It in that case is at least revelatory that the failure is the failure to live up to the standard or to do the thing that you're saying that people should do. I think in a lot of these cases, it just so it reveals people who are disingenuous. And I suppose there's some limited value to that. But it is just, again, to me, representative of how degraded our cultural political state is that this kind of thing is perceived as so brilliant. One of the very interesting things is what is the criticism that the Biden administration – or one of the lines of criticism that the Biden administration has received from this is that they are – flying people out of these border areas to other areas of the country where they can be more effectively processed. One of the chief sort of Republican responses has been to bus people to different areas of the country. What is fascinating here is this strikes me as very similar to the response in Germany with the Afghanistan refugee crisis. The German state's solution to this problem was to disperse people around the country. And one of the reasons they did that was to sort of so everybody shares the burden in this policy. And one of them is that they thought this would be a more effective assimilation tool. 
One of the problems with that is one of the things that Jonathan talked about earlier and how earlier waves of immigration in this country involved different communities from different areas of the world, different religions coming together in their own communities, not by anyone's design, but in order to better facilitate the well-being of those communities. And that resulted in ethnic neighborhoods, that resulted in these sort of, this sort of robust associational life, which is then, you know, that first step towards integration. And I, I know people in Germany who worked with refugees, and it was a constant, if you're in a village in, in, in Eastern Germany, and you are the one Afghani family there, you will not assimilate. You, and, if, and if you have to pass a language examination to get a work permit and this sort of thing, that creates isolation. It creates dependency. And I'm very worried that the one element of consensus we seem to have is that we should spread these people out where we think it's politically convenient and not about how do we encourage that robust associational life and integration into, uh, into Amer- American society? So I, I think the point about integrating into American society is so important. And that's another reason that I'm so concerned about mass immigration. Um, that We used to be pretty good um, at creating Americans. Our schools were good at it. Our culture was good at it. Um, and you know, we took wave after wave of immigration in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and we turned those people into, and, and obviously they, they, there were huge changes in what it meant to be an American, but what came out on the other side was a recognizable uh, uh, person who had, who had bought into the founding principles. Um, and while the face of America may have changed, what America stood for was exactly the same. Uh, and that's because we were good at creating Americans. We are not good at creating Americans anymore. I'm not even sure we agree on the fundamentals anymore. In fact, I'm pretty sure that we don't. So the idea that we can bring a whole bunch of new people into the country who uh, you know, need to be taught what it means to be an American when we don't know any longer what it means to be an American, I think is setting ourselves up for real problems down the road. And I don't want to end up like France where you've got, you know, slums outside of major cities with immigrants in them who have no jobs and no hope. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, terrible violence and terrible, you know, anti whatever the country is sentiment. Um, I don't want to end up like that. Uh, and that's, that's what this will be. We'll, we'll have a number of people who can't uh, acclimate themselves to the country um, and, you know, who carve out their own communities inside the large communities inside the country Uh, where it means something very different to be an American. Uh, And uh, that doesn't end well for us. We, we We can't do that here. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes for this episode where you will find a link that you can use to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Jonathan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.